Hello, welcome. We're glad you're joining us for A Reason for Hope today. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided by, for the most part, your questions on God's Word, the Bible. So if you have questions on Scripture, maybe a specific verse or passage of Scripture or the Bible as a whole, maybe uh, world events or prophetic things from a biblical perspective, maybe something going on in your world, maybe even other belief systems and religions, Really, any honest question that's on your heart, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers, that's what we're all about here at The Reason for Hope. So we're very glad that you are joining us. We encourage you to get your questions in on all the various platforms early. We do often run out of time. And uh, thank you for those regulars who sometimes persist with their questions over several days. Um, we'll be sure to get to those questions as soon as we can today. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today and fielding those questions as they come on in on the various platforms and with us today on this Thursday here in Tucson, Arizona, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you today? Good. I have recently acquired the skill of forgetting how to answer questions I don't know the answer to. Forgetting how to answer the questions you don't know the answer to. Take your time with that one. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll get back to you at the end of the show. Also with us is Peter Martin. Pastor Peter Martin, how are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, all of us are on staff here at Calvary Christian fellowship. Peter does a lot of our counseling here, which I'm sure is very adventurous for you. <laughs> Every day is a new adventure. Every day is a new adventure. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. It's very good to be here with you. Um, like I mentioned, a reason for hope, once I bring up the right page here for you, is a hour-long live broadcast. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, or of course, wherever that is for you around the world. If you have internet, you can join us through the, the modern wonders there. Uh, a reason for hope, Peter, don't make me laugh today. You said you wouldn't. You didn't say that at all. A <laughs> uh, reason for hope is uh, an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So bear that in mind when you're trying to find us on these various platforms. If you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab right there. This is a great uh, home base for you should you have technical problems on one of the other platforms, which sometimes are out of our control, we always encourage you to go to our website as we have more control over that. Uh, so follow that Watch Live tab. That will take you to our live page. Uh, if we're not online at, at the moment, you will see a countdown to the next time we will be, and you will see a schedule of not only Reason for Hope shows, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a Wednesday evening service, and we have three Sunday morning services as well. But if we are currently live, you will see our live video. You can sign in with a username and chat and interact with us that way. So again, that's probably the best way, um, the safest way, and the most reliable way for you to be part of the broadcast. The, the uh, uh, direct link is ccftucson.online.church, or again, follow the link from our uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com website. If you go to Facebook and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, you will find us there as well, or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Of course, you know Facebook with the uh, chat function, all that stuff. Make sure you like and share and uh, even subscribe on YouTube. Click the bell, that kind of thing. We'd love to reach a wider audience, so be sure to kind of share us around. We have an app as well for your mobile device, be it uh, iPhone or Android or your iPad or anything like that. We have um, a mobile device. And also on Roku and Apple TV, if you have those devices or a smart TV, you can watch us on your big screen as well. Why wouldn't you want to blow us up on your big screen? Three handsome dudes like us. Well, maybe... 
two of us and one. I'll let you decide which is which. Um, but look for Calvary Christian Fellowship. <laughs> Don't point to me, Sean. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Search for that in your app store and you should be able to find us. Let us know if you have any problems with these uh, platforms. We'd be glad to help you out and get you connected. So reach out, let us know. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason for Hope. Search for that on YouTube or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. You can follow our senior pastor. He's not with us today, but should you miss him, you can find him on Twitter at uh, Scott R4H. <laughs> I make myself laugh at these ridiculous things <laughs> I say. He posts highlights from the show. He posts kind of prophetic things, um, <clears throat> sort of commentary on news events from a biblical perspective. Uh, funny things, serious things, things that will make you go, hmm. So do uh, follow along with him on Twitter if you're a Twittery kind of person. Last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope at gmail.com. Use that uh, that address if you're listening to us on the radio because you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, so you're kind of a day behind there. But other than that, we are as live as can be. So consider joining us on one of those live platforms when you're not on your drive time. So whew, with all that being said, Sean, would you like to pray today yep. before we go any further? That would be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word, in your spirit, and among your people. We pray they would be edified as a result of what you have to say, not what Peter and I think. Allow us to not only communicate your heart, but to do so with hearts eager to share that. And we're grateful that you've opened up this door where we can honor you in this way. Allow, I guess, again, to be edified, exhorted, and comforted by the questions answered here today. Allow our answers to be grace seasoned with salt, and thank you once again that you're doing these things in our lives. We pray mm -hmm. this in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 It is true so that, yeah. Well, it's Thursday. I can't believe it's Thursday already. It just seems like yesterday it was Thursday, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was a week ago. That's how it works. Um, but you guys have been uh, talking about authors and uh, book recommendations and things like that. And uh, did you were you going to carry on with the whole token? token theme yeah <laughs> yeah we're actually going to get into the lord of the Rings. so so oh, last nice. week if uh, you weren't uh, joining us i encourage you to listen to it uh we just went into uh, a little brief understanding of tolkien and his motivation behind writing the lord of the rings trilogy so uh jr tolkien catholic guy was a catholic guy he was really good friends with c.s lewis and c.s lewis is most known for uh, both the chronicles and narnia series but also a lot of apologetic and nonfiction Christian uh, Christian books, which are all very excellent. However, uh, Tolkien doesn't really have any non-Christian works. Uh, he's he's most famous for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's what he really uh, puts his name on. And so we talked last week about num number one: why did he choose to invest the majority of his time and efforts into writing a fiction book, mm. uh, especially mythology, uh, a fantasy book? But number two: why is it that he did something, dedicated his life to something that a lot of Christians believe is a waste of time, could be dangerous. Some people think that uh, fantasy is a dangerous genre because mm. it pulls you into ancient paganism, uh, mythology, and magic. Why would he dedicate his life to that? Why would he see that as so important? And why is it that it was Tolkien that I believe had the greater cultural influence than Lewis? Uh, and he, again, chose to pick a Nonfiction, as a, I mean, a fiction as opposed to a nonfiction like Lewis. So uh, really interesting. And he, he didn't use as overt symbolism as C.S. Lewis. When you go into the Chronicles of Narnia, 
the Christian imagery there is real crystal clear. You can't miss it. With Lord of the Rings, it's much more nuanced. Someone could read it who is not a Christian and come away from it not understanding that Tolkien was a Christian, and many people have, by the way. Uh, but once you understand that J.R. Tolkien was a Christian, the themes stand out pretty readily. So what we're going to do today is we're I'm going to give a brief overview of what the books are about. Me and Sean are going to go back and forth talking about some of the big themes and symbols that Tolkien used in order to explain his view of Christianity in the world, because that's what artists do. Artists give us their perspective through the symbols and the stories that they tell us, right? It's a, it's a rare talent that they have, and it allows us to understand great amounts of information that are usually untenable for us, things that we wouldn't be able to understand in a philosophy textbook. We can understand pretty readily when it's presented to us in the form of narrative. That's why it's so powerful and so important. Uh, so anyway, those of you guys who haven't seen the movies, uh, haven't read the books, I strongly recommend the movies. I said last week that the books are a little tough to get through. If if you are way into the fantasy genre and you like kind of old-timey books, you'll like it. But if not, if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, getting through the books is a difficulty. I'm mm. a big fan of fantasy, and I'll tell you, getting through the books for me was kind of difficult. There's uh, areas where I feel like he went on a little bit too long. It's a little uh, tenuous. There's like weird uh, side quests and things that occur that are just all tightened up in the movies and make the story a lot more easy to follow. Plus, his character development is not as good as it could be. What he did that was that has made him such a name to be remembered is that he was, in my opinion, unparalleled in his ability to do world building. Uh, J.R. Tolkien's capacity to build a world from scratch, including a language and lore and, like, literally. Languages. He, yeah, languages. Created literal languages for his fictional world. Uh, lore, history... Uh, different races and stuff. It, it really is an unparalleled skill, and that's why he's remembered. His ability to develop characters and plot points, I don't think he was as proficient as, but hey, we can't all be great at everything. But what Peter Jackson did in the trilogy of movies is he tightened up all those things and made them really uh, condensed and easily digestible. So highly recommend the movies. If you haven't seen them, go watch them. Right? Mm. Just stop watching this right now and go watch them. <laughs> Just take the next nine hours out of your life and, <laughs> and go watch all three. Maybe, uh, what is it, like 12 or 14 hours if you watch the extended cuts. Which is a must. Yeah, which is a must. <clears throat> you might want to so, get a good night's sleep first and then try and tackle that. No, no, no. Just do it right now. <laughs> do it right now. Uh, but you're right. So the, the plot is, is really nuanced. So like I said, it, it takes place in a fictional world in which there are multiple races. There are hobbits, there are dwarves, there are elves, there are men, and then there are fallen elves, which we would call orcs, and there are also a lot of other mythological creatures. There are there are uh, balrogs, which are giant demons. There are uh, goblins. There are various other creatures throughout this world, and they're all representative of this idea, the concept of good versus evil. And each race has a very interesting symbolism into aspects or facets of humanity, both our good portions and our bad portions, and we might get into some of that today. But anyway, there's a sprawling epic that's going on in which there is a dark lord named Sauron who is trying to enslave Middle-earth, utilizing power. And he has uh, forged particular rings to enslave the individual races, and then he forges a master ring that he can enslave the leaders of the particular races and rule all of Middle-earth. He is thwarted at the very beginning of the movie. There's a, a little bit of a, a prologue in which they talk about how he was defeated. But instead of destroying the ring, man being corrupted by the nature of power, which we'll talk more about as one of the predominant themes within the series, 
man being corrupted by the, the nature of power chooses to keep the ring. And because of that, Sauron is allowed to live on. And uh, many centuries pass in the intervening periods. Uh, the ring ends up falling to one of the hobbits, which in a lot of ways, the hobbits represent innocence and they represent uh, kind of childlike wonder. And again, we'll talk more about them as we go through this. Uh, it falls to one of the, the hobbits, a guy named Bilbo. And he essentially is, uh, no one knows that that's the ring he has, but when it's discovered that it's the one ring that he, that he has, Frodo, his nephew, is given the task of going to Mordor to destroy the ring in order to preserve all of Middle-earth. And there's obviously a lot of things going on there that are very uh, interesting. And again, you should just watch the movies. There's no way I could sum it up or do it justice right here. But all that being said, uh, before we get into kind of some of the, the major themes and how they pertain to the Bible, uh, anything you'd like to add, Sean? Well, it's oftentimes a misunderstood fact that when we're talking about something done well, even not necessarily something that parallels or even pastes the Bible onto art or media, we need to understand that the fact that he did a good job <laughs> in what he did and what he was called to do, hmm. meaning not just serve us as an excellent writer, but also to provide a service yeah. as a Christian to do all things the way his God does, that is well. Hmm. We talked about last week about his quote about us being co-creators, and obviously that doesn't mean that we create from nothing, but as bearers of the image of God, we are creative. And so when we see things that resonate with the hearts and minds of people, that should be always taken advantage of as a gospel opportunity. Because, and I've made the association with you know video game franchises like Five Nights at Freddy's, Scott Cawthon was a Christian. Now you wonder, what does a Chuck E. Cheese horror parody have to do with the gospel? Everything. Everything. <laughs> no, he made, he was good at something, right. and he reflected the character of God in doing it well. Yeah. That in and of itself is a virtue that we need to not only recognize, but also seek to cultivate in the way we do things. Whatever we do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. God was glorified through the Lord of the Rings, maybe not in the way that it would be through a well-executed message or this radio program and in a biblically accurate answer, but in a way that demonstrated, man, that guy knew a God who was creative and it rubbed off on him. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we'll probably go over this book eventually, but a guy named Makoto Fujimura out in New York, who's a, an artist and a Christian, he wrote an interesting book that I read this year called Art and Faith, and he coined this phrase called the, uh, the theology of creating. And he said one of the reasons why we live in such a cynical culture is because we have way too many critics and not enough creators, right? So mm -hmm. when you attempt to create something beautiful, you understand just how much hard work and dedication goes into making something beautiful. But when you don't, you become very conditioned to be critical of things that are presented to you mm. and cynical of the things presented to you. So you spend a lot more of your time just complaining as opposed to actually uh, producing value to those around you. So I, I think he has a, some relevant points, and I think us Christians would do well to listen to that point. Uh, another interesting thing to, to mention is that Tolkien wrote these books. He was writing them during the time of World War II. He released it after World War II ended, but his this book had such a huge social impact because up until that point, Europe had widely gone away 
into the idea of secularism and secularism being the answer to all things. Mm. So most people in Europe really strongly believe that the problem with humanity was religion. And if we could get away from it, we'd be way better off. And, you know, the, the future utopia of mankind was going to be in a secularistic society. But then you had one of the most, and by one of the most, I mean the most educated, the most scientific culture of the day, namely the Germans, rise to dominance. And it wasn't pretty, right? The, the level of brutality that was shown from the West during that war was so unbelievably uh, just brutal and horrific that it caused many people to lose faith in humanity altogether. It had a huge effect on the arts after that time. People just lost hope in the West and in religion altogether. The Lord of the Rings coming out and giving people a symbolic battle between good and evil mm. was really, really impactful for people coming home from that war, understanding there is a such thing as good, there is a such thing as evil. Uh, in the secularistic world, it's like, no, there's no good, there's no evil. It's all just kind of like what's better and best for humanity. And we're all just kind of figuring it out as we go and we make our own meaning and things like that. Tolkien released an epic that's like, no, we don't make our own meaning. There is a meaning. There is a true. There is a good. There is a beautiful. And we choose to either participate with it or antagonize against it. And that's what we see within the Lord of the Rings. We see the realm of Sauron as being representative of the satanic forces, right? Adversarial forces to the work of God. And you see men caught in the balance between the elves that are fighting for order within Middle Earth. So very beautiful stuff. Now, mm. moving into another interesting theme that's present within the book is this idea of providence. So one of the things that sets apart the Lord of the Rings series from any other series, and by the way, this is a huge criticism against the new Rings of Power show. In the Lord of the Rings, there is no hero in the Lord of the Rings, which, which kind of shocks you when you think about it, but there is no hero. There are, are heroic characters, but there is no hero. A hero in a story traditionally is the strongest and the best, and they're the ones who end up resolving the conflict. If you uh, either watch or read the book, sorry, huge spoiler alert, everyone in the movie fails to control the ring of power, mm. right? So uh, Frodo does the best. That's why he is tasked with dumping it in Mount Doom. But every other character, Gandalf, Aragorn, Galadriel, they're all so tempted by the ring that they have to throw Frodo out of their presence. They know that they cannot take the temptation that the ring provides. And Frodo himself, when he comes to the precipice of throwing off the ring of power, he fails. He's not able to do it. It's Gollum, uh, who is kind of a, a dark doppelganger of Frodo, uh, representative, I believe he represents the flesh, mm. ends up trying to take the ring and falls in. So what we see is that in this whole story, there's this concept of providence. This is one of the criticisms that some people have had of Tolkien. People are like, man, you know, Tolkien, he just, you know, the eagles rescue everybody. You know, that's like a big criticism or, mm. you know, like, oh man, the golem falling into the mountain. It's so, it's such a weak ending and things like, well, it's because he's coming from a worldview in which God is provident and it's not going to be man that saves the world, but it's going to be God who saves the world. Mm. That's the whole idea. So a big, big theme is providence. So this is an interaction that Frodo has with Gandalf. Uh, Frodo says, I wish the ring had ever come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. Mm. Gandalf responds and says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time that is given us. Mm. There is a sovereign force that is orienting and cataloging the course of time towards his ends, namely God. It's not for us to question 
what our place in that story is, it's our place to instead figure out what can we do given the circumstances that we've been given, right? Uh, and again, very powerful message both for that time as well as, you know, it's pretty amazing when the movies came out, it was in 2001, and that was when the war on terror started. Mm. Uh, that was when the, the trade towers fell. So the mm. movies had a huge cultural impact as well for that reason, this mm. rising of evil, this understanding of what is good and what are we fighting for and, yeah. and liberty. And, and again, the idea of providence that wars from the Christian perspective will continue to happen no matter which wars we win or which wars we lose. They will continue to pop up and occur because there is a fallenness to our nature that mm. will perpetuate violence and corruption until the providential will of God undoes it at the end of time. And that mm. is what the book of Revelation is all about. And uh, Dagor Dagorath in Tolkien's lore. Yeah. Um, anything you'd like to add to that, Providence? No, just clarifying the whole point. When we're having these squabbles and when we see <clears throat> modern culture literally not only undermined but derailing the whole purpose to which Tolkien was writing these books in the first place, what needs to be understood, and you're going to find this in personal evangelism just as much as your appreciation for entertainment, the assumptions that are made before the shows are even watched are where the mistakes happen. What they appreciate about it is a willful self-deception rather than an acknowledgement of an uncomfortable truth. And if our goal in entertainment is either to be comfortable or to be challenged, that's also going to color whether or not you can glorify God through these things. We believe that Lord of the Rings, as the author intended it, was able to and still is able to glorify God in some way. And we know that there were some errors in Roman Catholic tradition that crept in as well, more in line with the Silmarillion than it would be with the... Uh, uh, Lord, Lord of the Rings proper, uh, but this is uh, just an aside. You can tell that there's a bit of a jab, especially in the Hobbit trilogy, that the idea of the Christians, those who are the representatives or closest to God compared to men, were the elves. And the Sylvian elves, the wood elves, were the Protestants. They were the <laughs> unruly ones of the bunch, whereas the other ones just stuck to tradition and, you know, you, you get the idea. Their leader was named Luther and no, 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 no. that's not true. <laughs> but what was also interesting as well, uh, a lot of parallelism between the dwarves in Israel and their virtue, to their credit, Tolkien didn't fall into the anti-Semitic bent that his uh, denomination oftentimes fosters. Yeah. There's a very, very beautiful illustration of the sanctity of marriage in the Silmarillion as far as the first elves are concerned because when the first elf that dies hmm. in the undying lands, imagine that, um, the, the king of the elves wants to remarry and that had never been done before. Hmm. And it was such a horrific thing that the, the Valar themselves had to literally intercede with God, with Eru to figure out how this was to properly be handled. Mm. So again, the best and the worst of even his bent, his worldview, colored how he painted this world that was nonetheless beautiful. We need to also understand there are people who won't get it, right. not because they're not reading, not because they're being purposefully deceptive or manipulative, but we need to recognize the assumptions are what need to be challenged, and that's where our worldview comes in. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in the essay we read last week on fairy stories talking about Tolkien's view, he had a phrase in there called arresting strangeness. 
And what he meant is that when we use mythology, there's something so odd about it that it, it arrests your attention. It makes you pause and ponder. Mm. And that's why he was able to cause even, even greater catharsis and release to happen in people, even in this mythological world. So uh, there are many people who, like I said, listening to that quote from Gandalf and Frodo, even though this is a myth, this is a fake conversation. It never actually happened found strength and hope in the midst of dark times, right? Dark times within the country, dark times within their own lives. And to remember that so many, so much of Christianity is reactionary nowadays. The end is coming, everything's falling apart, the country's going to hell, all that stuff. Uh, to remember things like this, that, hey, maybe it is. But you know what? God is eventually, he has a plan. There's a providential uh, aim in what's happening. And no matter how dark it gets, this is another theme that's within Lord of the Rings, no matter how dark it gets, there's always a light that shines us home. Mm. So uh, I'll do one more. We might do some more next week. We'll see. Uh, maybe we'll get into a different book. The temptation and effects of power is a huge theme within the book. So uh, the rings represent power within the trilogy. And that's really interesting, right? It's, an, it's a really interesting symbol. Why rings? You know, why not crowns? Why not mm. swords? Why not uh, castles of power or something like that? Why craft rings? And there's a couple interesting, you know, mythological reasons as to why he did it. But I think the, the primary reason is actually it comes from Plato's Republic. So in Plato's Republic, uh, they're arguing about justice and the role of justice within humanity. And... Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into it because we're already, I'm not going to explain a book for a book. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> essentially, uh, one of the members says that justice is some, simply something we do because we have to. Mm. Otherwise, we'll get punished or otherwise something bad will happen to us. And so he tells a story of a man who discovers a ring that provides him ultimate power. <clears throat> and it gives him this power by giving him the capacity to turn invisible. Mm. Sound familiar, right? So when Broda puts on the ring, it turns him invisible. Now, the reason why is because it's asking the question of if you're invisible, that means that your behavior is without consequence. Mm. So it's asking the question of what would you do if you knew there were no consequences to your action? Mm. And that's what Frodo's presented with. He's presented with the ability to act in a way that will not have any consequences. And even in the beginning of the movie, his uncle Bilbo, who originally has the ring, is using the ring just to play tricks on people, basically, right? Mm. He does but it. But in history, he also did things very noble with it as well. That's right. That's right. So you see that kind of balance within him. But you have this idea of if you had the power to get away with whatever you wanted, what would you do? Mm. And Tolkien believed very strongly that power has a huge corrupting influence on people. And therefore, the more competent people within the Lord of the Rings trilogy are subject to the corrupting influence of the ring, and that's why they can't be around it. The only people who are immune to the ring's power are those who are cloaked by innocence, right? So that would be the hobbits, as well as a character that we're not going to talk too much about, Tom Bombadil. Right? That's, a, that's a whole other discussion about He is the is. master. He is yeah. above Sauron. That's right. So you, you have this idea that innocence can cloak you to the propensity towards power. Mm. That, that, that can happen. But once you're out of innocence, and once you are in a position where you're no longer uh, surrounded by that, it's very easy to be corrupted by power. And that's why Frodo offers the ring to Gandalf, and Gandalf says, don't tempt me, 
because I would want to do something good with this ring, but through me, it would create great evil. Mm. So what Tolkien is warning is if we have the will to power as central in our focus, and even in our minds and thoughts, like how many Christians uh, or individuals of varying bends have tried to achieve power for positive ends and ended up becoming corrupted by them, right? Christians who seek political gain and end up becoming corrupted by politics or Christians Mm. who pursue money or fame and end up becoming corrupted by the pursuit. Mm. The danger, the dangerous corrupting influence of power is something that Tolkien is trying to warn us about. It's something that's very real and relevant. After World War II ended, Tolkien said famously that we may have defeated Sauron, but we have given into the power of the ring in order to do so. Now, he was specifically talking about the fire bombings that we did on various uh, civilian populations mm. in Germany, as well as the nuclear bombs we dropped on Japan. Now, what he's saying is that even though we were trying to stop the predations of the Axis powers, we did give in to the utilization of power in order to inflict our will upon innocence, in order to get our way. And that was a greater evil, what Tolkien <laughs> called was Morgoth's ring, Sauron's master. That's right. And so, kind of, uh, so the two things that we could pull from this is number one, again, the corrupting influence of power, but also the ends justifying the means mentality that so easily pervades our consciousness, that we need to be very careful not to have that. Uh, compromising attitude. The ends don't justify the means. We need to be very careful about the way that we pursue the good uh, in compromising our own values and consciences. So uh, very, very important stuff to understand. Any, uh, anything you'd like to add to that? Wrap up? If I start on Lord of the Rings, I will never finish. So I'm <laughs> going to just pass this. Yeah, can't stop. <laughs> no one's listening anyway. They all, they've all gone to Watch the movies just Never like you instructed them to. So. We're on in the in the background. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. No, there's fantastic themes that could be emphasized all the live long day. I've done some studies on the various topics discussed throughout. Done more on the Silmarillion if you are interested for those listening. But the whole point of emphasis needs to be there is a reason to enjoy things beyond just escapism. Mm. There is a benefit to just unwinding, getting into a world other than this one and letting them deal with their problems while you forget about yours. But I've encouraged this. Peter would, I'm sure, agree with me, and Dave's opinion doesn't matter. When we're talking about... (laughs) (laughs) You just changed the angle. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have time for today. Yeah, I could make fun of the guy who's controlling my audio. (laughs) No, I love you, Dave. We're having fun. The point being made is this. There is a better purpose to the things that we are entertained by than just asking, what am I doing with Lord of the Rings case 12 hours of my life? Saying, you know what, can I find Jesus in this? And Tolkien definitely gave us a layup. So that's why we'd recommend it. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. More next week, next Thursday? Yeah. More the same? Cool. Well, we have uh, some questions to jump into. We had a couple of questions yesterday about masturbation. You ready for this? That's a big one. It's a big one. It is. It is indeed. Um, if uh, 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 is masturbation sinful? Do you prefer the term masturbation or self gratification? Self gratification, usually for those listening, in case yeah. there's kids or prudish individuals, for better or for worse. Too late now. Okay, with well, self gratification, uh, is it sinful? Uh, someone said they heard a pastor teaching that it's possible to self gratify without lusting. It's just something that people do. Uh, we had a great question about what's the difference between lust and attraction. Is attraction mm-hmm. okay? That's a great question. Um, so yeah, the whole topic. And Peter, you have uh, 
we've talked before about Running Light Ministries, which you're what the president of now. Is I'm, the, I'm some title. I don't know something. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the the whole organization of Running Light is me, Bo, Lisa, and Bethany. So I mean, we're all kind of like yeah, and Katie now too. We're all CEOs and you know yeah. vice presidents. Right. And who knows? And it's but. based around people <laughs> with sexual struggles um, yeah. or people who've been hurt. You know, by perhaps a spouse or someone That's else right. who so, yeah, struggling those things. We try to approach the topic from a biblical perspective. Yeah, and try to help people, give people as many resources as they can right. in dealing with this issue. So, self gratification <clears throat> is it sinful? Is it something that just people do? Is it possible to do it without lusting and committing a, a sin before the Lord? Yeah, and what the thing topic. that people do, I think, is the thing that needs to be addressed first because the oftentimes excuse for any sin and belittling its consequence or impact on our lives is everyone does it or everyone is doing it. And of course, Veggie Tales works that pretty well out of our minds in the illustration of Daniel with chocolate bunnies for some reason, but I digress. We need to keep in mind, first of all, the fact that when it the Bible addresses sexual ethics, it's very broad in its use or misuse. It's sexual immorality, and there's, of course, godly sexuality. There is the immoral use of our sexuality, and there is the intended purpose of our sexuality. You can go as hardline into Roman Catholicism and note the uh, old Monty Python skit, every sperm is sacred, right? Or you can go all the way to the other side, which apparently uh, your pastor tried to make an excuse for and saying that, oh yeah, just don't lust during it, good luck. But the point being made still stands. When the Bible lays itself out, the purpose is not for us to know what to do and what not to do in every circumstance. The purpose is a relationship with God and living in light of those truths. So if you're asking for a thou shalt not, fill in the blank for your term, it's not going to be there. Now, people can make the argument from absence, the argument from silence, or they could make an informed decision on what is sexually immoral about any behavior mm. and behave accordingly. Does this glorify God? Right. And that's the question. So if I ask myself in whatever I'm doing, whether it's self-gratification, whether it's marital activities, whether it's extramarital activities and use of my sexuality, whether it's certain genres of pornography that people try to justify and saying, well, there's worse stuff out there. You understand the bad logic behind all of this and what's the key assumption? Does this glorify God? Mm. And it's an uncomfortable topic for some people because they usually keep the issue of sexuality and God entirely separate. And then you meet a guy like Bo Olet and then their brains blow up. So it's a very important issue that ought to be talked out, uh, talked about more in Christian circles. So again, just laying out some of the clarifications and giving you the layup of the purpose of sexuality. What then to Denver's question, not just about love and lust or attraction and the differences therein, but in this issue at its core, what about our sexuality glorifies God and what then would we recognize doesn't? Uh, yeah, if so that's the direction you want to go to. Yeah, no, like I said, it's a, it's a very good question and one that's incredibly relevant right now. As you said, Sean, not many people want to talk about it, but it is one of the seminal issues occurring in the West right now. I mean, mm -hmm. pornography is... is uh, a huge pervasive issue. The amount that is consumed and viewed both inside and outside the church is astronomical. Mm. Uh, some people like to put this at, at a fringe issue and pretend like it's happening somewhere else. 
but it's not. It's happening in your home. It's happening in my home. It's happening all over the, the place, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very, very deep and abiding problem because of the prevalence of it. Uh, there's a difference between having to actually go out and purchase something pornographic or to purchase someone in order to have intimacy with, like a prostitute, and being able to just, in your home, yeah. view something. And the prevalence of it is so extreme that you can stumble upon it without looking. Yep. Um, so I, <clears throat> I just want to preface it with that. I don't say any of these things casually or pretend as if the moral imperative that the Bible gives us is easily done. Uh, this is an incredibly difficult issue to find yourself getting control over mm. uh, if you're living in the modern age. And, you know, it, it, it really, at this point, I think the numbers are still one to three, uh, about one females in three are the viewers of pornography. So uh, that's that's a pretty high statistic. It used to be much lower than that. Mm. It used to be something like one in five or one in seven. Mm. Uh, so it's still, uh, men are still viewing pornography two to three uh, against women, but it's still, you know, the numbers are definitely evening out. So it's just a huge pervasive issue regardless of your male or female. Now, another thing that we have to establish, like Sean said, is we have to look at, well, if I'm going to declare that a particular action is wrong, I have to understand intent, because the Bible doesn't particularly and specifically forbid every behavior that we can Mm -hmm. think of, right? There is no passage in the Bible that explicitly calls out, uh, let's say, beating your wife, right? Now, we can make an airtight argument that you ought not to beat your wife from moralities that are laid out elsewhere, but there is no explicit command. Uh, Same with this one. There is no explicit command not to self-gratify, but it doesn't mean you can't lay out an argument that would would declare it being something sinful from the other biblical passages. So what we see biblically, and there's a reason why your pastor utilized the word lust, is because what's irrefutable, what we do have explicit commands about are lust, right? Jesus said that if you Mm. lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So his idea is that and obviously he's God, so that's God's idea. The idea is that sin is not just what you do with your body, but it's what's happening mentally as well, right? Yeah. It's it's what's going on in your head. So you can actually have thoughts that never express themselves <clears throat> in actions or behaviors that still remain sinful. And so what he's saying when he says that it's possible to self-gratify without lusting mm is he's suggesting that the action or the behavior itself is only sinful if you participate in it with a lustful heart. So what does the word lust mean? Well, lust is a, it's the Greek word epithemia, and it means a strong craving for that which is forbidden to you. Mm. Uh, Now, now, usually it's forbidden to you because it's sinful, right? God says not to, uh, or it could be forbidden to you because it's not yours, right? So Mm. uh, if I'm strongly lusting after your car, the reason why it's forbidden to me is because I don't own your car. It's not that it would be sinful for me to have it if you sold it to me. It's just that it's forbidden to me because it doesn't belong to me. Yeah. Um, covet, covet thy neighbor's ox. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where those uh, – covet, by the way, is a, is a synonym for lust. Mm. Now, when Jesus is talking about sexual lust, he's saying that it's craving something that doesn't belong to you. Right? So if I'm – strongly desiring, passionately desiring to obtain a woman's beauty who is not giving herself to me freely in the bonds of marriage, that would be the idea of lust. Now, if I'm engaging in activity, and that's what you're doing when you're self-gratifying, you are tricking your body into believing you're engaging in sex. Mm. That's why you're able to bring yourself to a climax in that way. 
there's a, a trickery that's going on mentally. Now, the only way to do that, the only way to engage sexually is to have some sort of sexual things occurring within your head, whatever those might be. But that's some sort of a lust. That is some sort of a desiring. Even if you say it's a desiring of a sexual activity that you're not able to engage in mm. rightfully. Now, there are many problems with it. And I, I like the fact that we are using the term self-gratification because it's more descriptive of what it is. Mm. Uh, masturbation, I mean, it's like, what does that even mean? Like, it's just this weird, it sounds Germanic, I don't know, word that's just out there. Self-gratification is more descriptive of what you're doing. You are seeking to gratify yourself. Mm. Well, one of the main governors over the act of sexual intimacy is to be God's supreme and definable love. Right, And one of the main aspects of God's love given to us in 1 Corinthians 13 is love does not seek its own, meaning that what's supposed to govern my sexual activity is the desire, the will to bless and benefit another and mm. not to seek mm. selfishly my own gratification. Mm. Well, when you self-gratify, that's all you're seeking. <clears throat> you're, you're seeking your own gratification above and apart from anyone else's. Mm. Now, if you don't think that that has a psychological effect on you, right, as a single person for you to do, it's not the worst thing in the world. I'm not saying it's like the, the king of all sins and you're like just as bad as someone who commits adultery. I'm not saying that, but I am saying it is a sin mm. and it is enforcing into your mind and into your behaviors an ideal of selfishness when it comes to sexuality, yeah. right? That's problematic. Uh, another problem is, is kind of as Sean alluded to, I don't actually believe someone when they say, I'm not lusting when I self-gratify. It's very hard for me to even comprehend that statement. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like someone saying, I'm not thinking about food when I eat. Yeah. How do you engage in gratifying an appetite of eating without thinking about food? How do you engage in gratifying a sexual desire yeah. without thinking about sex? Mm. That, that doesn't, this is pretty nonsensical to me. Now, the intent of sex given to us in 1 Corinthians 6 is to be an acted-out representation of God's unity within himself and towards his people. Right? This is what Paul says. It's an acted-out representation of godliness in terms of unity. This is why it's restricted to one person within the confines of marriage. Mm -hmm. Jesus restricts himself exclusively to one bride, namely the church. And that relationship is not intimate until there is mutual consent from both parties mm -hmm. and bounded by covenantal agreement, right? So Jesus didn't just say, hey, I'm with you. He died for us. He gave himself for us and committed himself to us forever. When we're giving our lives to Jesus, we're not just saying, hey, I'll try you out. We're giving our lives to him. We're declaring mm -hmm. him Lord and Savior. And it's only when those two things happen that the Holy Spirit indwells the church. Right, And in the same way, if you're going to act out that representation, I'm going to have to give my life to my prospective partner before I give her my body. Right, I'm not supposed to get the two mixed up. I don't mm. give her my body before I give her my life. That's exploitative. Mm. I give my life first, and then only in the confines of trust and intimacy am I able to, and, and safety, which is what marriage is set up to do, am I then able to consummate that with an acted out representation, namely sexual intimacy, right? So it's, it's very important to understand that. Again, self-gratification removes all those factors. You're not committing yourself to anybody because you're only with yourself. It's not for the confines of love because once again, there's no other partner in the equation and it's only for the prospective purpose of gratifying your own pleasures. 
as opposed to seeking mutual contact with another person mm. and working its way out in consummation of a greater relationship, right? Mm. So all those factors are removed. Uh, I just read an interesting book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And uh, I, he is being hyperbolic in this statement, but I still think it's kind of funny and interesting. Uh, he said, I almost prefer the days where people go and buy a prostitute to someone viewing pornography. Mm. He's like, at least when you're buying a prostitute, you're spending money, you are sacrificing something, and at least you're interacting with someone. Mm. Uh, when you're viewing pornography, you're interacting only with yourself mm. and engaging in, in uh, just selfish narcissism. Now, again, he's being a little hyperbolic there. I, I don't think we're supposed to take him incredibly literally, but there is a, a relevant point there mm. that there is an attitude of selfishness that's at work in our hearts, especially in this country, that has made pornography such a lucrative business. I mean, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars are made by pornographic industries every single year. Uh, billions and billions of people view it every single day, right? This, this is a, a huge, huge industry that we mm -hmm. need to be aware of as Christians. Um, now, before we get into the concepts of love and lust and attraction and stuff, anything you'd like to add or clarify? No, not mm -hmm. at the moment. All right, cool. So uh, I already kind of gave a basis for the distinctions between love and lust, right? Love is a strong desire, but it's a strong desire that's geared towards the betterment of another. Lust is a selfish desire for that which is forbidden to you, right? It's, it's, a, it's an ownership desire. I want to own you or utilize you for my own ends. Mm -hmm. Love is about seeking the betterment of someone else, sometimes in contradiction to your own good, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's how love works. That's why it's self-sacrificial. So when we say that we love somebody, oftentimes in our culture, we think I have strong, deep, passionate emotions towards them. Now, that is a part of love. That's a facet of love, but it's not the totality of love. Mm. If you have just strong passion, it could very well be lust. It could be infatuation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you love that person. Mm. And even when you do uh, gain an, an actual loving perspective towards someone, uh, it's difficult to work that way, that out in reality, because there's a lot of fighting urges and propensities within your flesh, right? So to work that out with someone and to make sure that it's a mutual relationship mm -hmm. as opposed to a one-sided infatuation mm -hmm. is something that you need to work on. You need to negotiate that with your prospective partner. This is not something where, uh, well, I'm so into them, it doesn't matter if they're into me. No, that's that's stalker, right? That's not actual love. That is, again, it's an infatuated lust that mm. you're developing you're you're strongly desiring that which is forbidden to you yeah. it's not being offered um so you, you need to be very careful with that and cognizant of it and that also gets into the idea of uh, i believe it was attraction versus um it, yeah know? lust versus attraction yeah is it lust okay to be attracted what's the difference between that yeah. no yeah very very good question so attraction is not sin uh, all attraction means and we could be attracted in non-sexual ways right i could be attracted to to a particular job opportunity i could be attracted to eating yeah. chocolate right all that means is that there's something in me that finds pleasing a particular activity or person mm -hmm. uh, something is resonating with me when i'm looking at someone so I could be attracted to someone's personality, meaning that their character is attractive to me. I look at it and I say, yeah, that's appealing. That resonates with me. I feel as though I can harmonize with that type of personality. I could get along with that personality and I emulate that personality. I think of your behavior as being good and um, respectable, something to be praised. If I'm talking about someone's looks, the same thing. I find you physically attractive. I find you to be very beautiful to me. I, uh, again, praiseworthy. Uh, appealing, all those are synonyms for the same thing. Attraction is is a necessary part 
of what we would call love. For how could you be repulsed by someone and yet love them in a mutual context, mm -hmm. right? Now, you could have the unconditional type love that God has for someone, like love for your enemies, but even then you have to have some baseline level of attraction, right? Even Martin Luther King, when he was talking about loving white supremacists, he at least said, well, I am attracted to the fact that you're made in the image of God, right? Mm -hmm. If that's all you got, that's something, right? You're made in the image of God and you have the potential to convert mm -hmm. and to believe in God and to be forgiven and to be a new man, right? That's enough for me to love you in that grand uh, context. But you don't see any anywhere in the Bible God expressing love for, say, demons. Right. Because they're, they're, they've fallen so far away from the image of God that there's nothing left to love. Yeah. Right? You have to have some sort of attraction in order to love somebody, even if it's just perspective attraction. You have potential to be better than you are. But once again, the distinction is, is attraction is a component in both love and lust. Mm. All it means, the difference isn't really attraction versus lust. It's what's the difference between love and lust. And then you can figure out how does attraction fit into love mm. and how does attraction fit into lust and what's the differences there. Mm. And I hope I've done a good enough job explaining that. But if yeah. do you feel like, or do I, I think need so. to clarify something? Yeah, no, I think that's great. All right. Anything yeah. you'd like to add, clarify? No. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I hope that, that helps you out. It's certainly a, a awesome topic to discuss. Um, question from Yari, and thank you, Yari, for you're one of the people that's been hanging in there for several days with your questions. <laughs> so let's get to it now. Um, what is an example of spiritual attack against a Christian, and is such thing even possible for believers? Uh, he he talks about. I uh, heard about uh, an example of a person was feeling tingling tingling in his arm, and the doctor couldn't find out what it was. And the pastor said that it was um, spiritual. So, is there um, spiritual attacks against a Christian, and can those be physical things? Yeah, that's I think the kicker. Uh, he gave other examples throughout the weeks of the uh, idea of I'm depressed right now. I'm under spiritual attack. I feel this sensation. I'm under spiritual attack. It's essentially the devil made me feel this way, if you want to know right. the old term. So if we're asking the question, is it biblical? It's asking, is that found and supported in the Bible? Given our revelation of the supernatural and our reasons to trust it, can we take a step back and ask, are these things attributed to the supernatural lining up with what's been revealed to us? Or is there some speculation on the basis of, well, I feel this so passionately, therefore it must be true, which is, of course, hogwash. So if we ask the question, what in the Bible is described as a spiritual attack? Well, we can go, obviously, for all three in the book of Job and asking for a social, circumstantial spiritual attack, a physical spiritual attack, and a emotional spiritual attack, mm. all of which were, in fact, at work in the book of Job. In the first chapter, obviously, there was an exchange between God and the devil where he accused, as is his name, accuser, uh, Job, of being a mercenary for God, and God allowed him to socially attack him, to take away his finances, to mm -hmm. take away his family, but to not touch his life. So there was a demonstration of a spiritual origin attack on somebody, an effort to discredit or discourage or take them down before God. That was, in fact, a thing. The second chapter, obviously, that didn't work. Job did not curse God with his lips nor charge God foolishly. Devil said, well, you don't let me touch him. So he allowed him to take away his health, but not his life. That's a physical result, a spiritual attack that involved his physical well-being, his uh, body. 
And then, of course, the emotional state. He, as a result of these spiritual attacks, um, grieved the day that he was born. And there are other examples of prophets, Jeremiah, for instance, who cursed the man who said that uh, a boy was born had I not died in the womb, and that would have been better off than where I find myself in life. All these things are actual instances of spiritual attack Mm -hmm. with one major clarification. We're told in advance the source of these things was spiritual. Mm -hmm. Can Satan do these things? Can he affect our circumstances? Can he affect our mental perception of things? Can he affect our physical well-being? Yes, but has he? That's the big question. So when you ask the question, is this coming from the devil or not? Obviously, just like with, say, for example, the differences between a mental disorder and demonic possession, it is very easy to find out the difference. If it's a spiritual attack, it has a spiritual solution. Job did what to overcome and endure the attacks from the devil? It was drawing near to God, a la the book of James. If you, um, and this is again going back to the exorcism issue, if you are dealing with someone mentally ill, mention the name of Jesus. If it's just one name among many and they don't look like they've just been hit in the face with a brick, you've eliminated demonic possession. Mm -hmm. If in the midst of your spiritual attack, you respond to it with a spiritual solution, you draw near to God and he draws near to you, That is, as the next verse uh, states, resisting the devil and causing him to flee from you. If in drawing near to God, you're just enduring, say, for example, a trial, things in this world going wrong, things in your life that are just going wrong, things that in your emotional state, like we talked about on Tuesday, that you may just need something to eat, that you may (laughs) naturally be responding to, you know, you're at a memorial and you're wondering, why do I feel sad? You're supposed to. Those sort of things aren't necessarily spiritual attack. And this is where the deception comes in. And yes, I use that word purposefully. If we say Satan can do these things, therefore he is doing those things, you're talking to someone who hasn't gone through these tests and hasn't examined these things. If it is of spiritual origin, it also has a spiritual solution. If it has a physical origin, it has a spiritual and physical solution. You can take opportunities and trials to draw near to God, as James 1 says. Or, in the midst of spiritual attacks, take advantage of drawing near to God. But don't discount, don't default, don't assume that if something's going wrong, if a sensation is felt, if things are just bad, you say, the devil's doing it. I'm Mm. under spiritual attack. I'm just going to be frank. None of us are that important. Mm. The devil's got stuff to do in heaven, accusing us before the Father. I don't think he's interested in most of us. But if on the other hand we're to say, you know what? Things stink right now. Whether it's spiritual or physical, I'm going to use this to draw near to God Mm. instead of the devil. And I think that whoever this pastor is would do you and his congregation a lot more service in emphasizing that rather than the potential, not guaranteed, not certain, but potential source of his problems. Focus on the solution. Yeah. Anything to add? We've got time for one more. We do, just about, re- real quick. Uh, Mac D uh, asks, are 
Christians are hypocritical at times. This is a yes. common accusation. You Christians are hypocrites. What would you say to that? And be quick. Well, human beings are hypocritical. So all, all hypocritical means is that what I say and what I do don't always jive. Yep. Right? There's there's a, a disparity a disparity between what I am attempting to do or or aiming at doing or presenting myself as and what I'm actually doing. Uh, the what a lot of people point out in Christians as being evidence that Christianity is untrue is to say, look at you Christians, you do the same stuff that everybody else does. And our point, our contention that we believe in God has never been, we are holy and we don't do what the world does. Right. The contention is we actually do what the world does, yeah. but we have the capacity to be forgiven yeah. for these evil actions. And then we also have the capacity to conform ourselves more to the image of God. That doesn't mean that we're perfect in it. It just means that that's what we're aiming at. Yep. So it's our goal orientation that's different, and it's the power of forgiveness that's different. It's not necessarily our behavior. There yeah. are people who are atheists who are far more moral than many Christians, and there are people who are Christians who are far more wicked than many atheists or other religious mm. groups. Yeah. So really, any accusation, we agree that, yes, I am those things. I am not Jesus. That's right. That's why I default to him. That's right. That's right. Well, anything else to add, Sean? Nope. Or Peter, any final words? We are out of time for today, man. It goes so quickly. Tomorrow we'll be back with you, same time, same uh, places. We'll get to more of your questions. We have some bit of a backlog here, so do join us tomorrow, and we'll try to endeavor to get straight onto those uh, questions. If you're looking for somewhere to fellowship and you're in the Tucson, Arizona um, area, Calvary Christian Fellowship, that's where we're broadcasting from. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Uh, we'd love to, to have you visit. Our church here, we have uh, three Sunday services. You go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can check out all the details there. Um, but like I say, we have no interest in poaching you from another church. That's just like moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic, my pastor in England used to say. Um, but uh, yeah, tomorrow will be our last day of the week. Uh, Friday, join us same time, same place for more of your questions, more with a reason for hope. Sean, thank you so much. Pizza, thank you. We'll see you. Have a great evening, everyone. God bless you. See you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.